News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It took only hours for Hockey Canada to say it will no longer use a special fund that it has to settle sexual assault claims. And hours after the news broke in the Globe and Mail newspaper that Hockey Canada was collecting membership fees, putting them in this so-called National Equity Fund, and then using that money to pay settlements that its insurance didn't pay for, such as sexual assault claims. Yet another blunder for an organization that really can't afford any right now. Joining us now to talk about this continuing story is Ian Mendez, senior writer at The Athletic. You should definitely check it out. Ian, thanks for being back with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Simi. Okay, so here we are once again. You think that, you know, they've turned a corner with saying the right thing. How the heck did we not know about this fund and what they were using the money for? Well, we got to give a tip of the hat to the Globe and Mail because uh, they did a terrific job earlier this week in uncovering that story that uh, that essentially Hockey Canada had been using funds. Uh, you know, so think about this: if you have your daughter or son playing hockey, uh, it's all under the Hockey Canada umbrella because they look after insurance for minor hockey in this country. Imagine that. Even if it was seven dollars or ten dollars, whatever the amount was from your child's uh, registration would go towards paying out uh, to kind of, you know, uh, resolve alleged sexual assault cases. It's a, it, it you almost can't believe it. You got to pick you your jaw up off the floor. Yeah. And, you know, the Globe and Mail reported to me that that fund was about 15, at one point had $15 million in it. So, um, and, and you feel like they did this so that they could kind of handle their business with minimal outside scrutiny and kind of just take care of business. It's tr- it is truly appalling that that is how, uh, how it all unfolded. And also what appalled me and alarmed me in this story as well, Ian, is the fact that they deal with several of these complaints every year. Now, how, and you would know better than I would about the culture problems here, is that how is it that they thought it was better to create a fund to pay these people off a couple of times, several times a year, rather than deal with their what is clearly a culture problem? Exactly, and, and you know you got to go back to um, last month. Hockey Canada, there, there was a parliamentary uh, testimony. Again, we're going to have some more of those hearings next week here in Ottawa. But in that testimony, Hockey Canada representatives said uh, over the last six years they have dealt with one or two sexual assault allegations that have kind of fallen under their umbrella. And if you, you're absolutely right. You're thinking, why, why haven't you uh, called for systemic change within your organization? Why haven't you looked in the mirror? And, and instead, why are you trying to, uh, you know, you know, potentially settle these cases financially and not look at like, there is such a deep rooted issue here. And it's not just hockey. I want to make this very clear. The power structures that you see and the power dynamics of men protecting other men, yes, you see it in hockey, but you know what? You see it in the corporate world and you see it in government and you see it in churches and you see it in all of these institutions that we sometimes hold to a, to a high uh, standard. And at some point here, you'd like to think that Hockey Canada would not have to be embarrassed publicly, not to have sponsors pull the plug, not to have the Globe and Mail and other um, outlets uh, reporting things with their investigative uh, journalistic arms, that they would actually look in the mirror and say, you know what, we got to do the right thing. Exactly. And and you were right when you said right off the top, you said, boy, for, a, for an organization that can ill afford another blunder, it feels like every time you hit refresh on social media, 
there's a new one for you. So, and as you point out here, for parents who have their children in hockey, you're putting them in hockey, you're putting them in organized sports because you want them to learn all sorts of great lessons that come from being in organized sports. And often we look to hockey as well to teach them all sorts of great life lessons. And nobody at Hockey Canada thought, boy, we need to take a look at ourselves here to teach some pretty good life lessons. Isn't that isn't that so true? Like when you think about hockey and think about the commercials that you sometimes see on your television that kind of promote those sort of, uh, you know, wholesome images of hockey, right? It's the parent getting up at 6 a.m. and stopping off for a coffee or brewing a coffee and, and, you know, the kids getting on the ice. And it's all about the camaraderie and the teamwork and the community building. And and you know what? For a lot of us, that was our experience. That was my experience in hockey. And I've loved it. But it's not the experience for everybody. And we can't just sit back and say, well, 95% of the sport is good. Yeah, maybe that is the, the case. But the 95% of us need to call out the, 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 the smaller percentage that is, that is doing this. And hockey has done a terrible job over the years, Simi, of um, protecting predators, allowing predators to thrive. And we have to, we have to stop it. So if Hockey Canada and the governing bodies aren't going to do it, then those of us that cover the sport as media – or as parents and coaches, we need to blow the whistle on this and say enough is enough and, and say if there are truly 95% of us that are good people, then we need to be able to um, have that influence and exert our influence over that minority so that it is a safe and 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 um, fulfilling experience for everybody who takes part in, in, in the sport. Yeah, let me ask you this, Ian. Do you think this story, this most recent development, changes things in the general public, because before there might have been people who thought, okay, this didn't affect me. But now it turns out if you paid this registration fee, which millions of Canadians did, yeah, you were actually, this does impact you. Yes, exactly. And I, I do think that this one probably hit home for a lot of people to realize, wait a minute, you know, my, my kid plays uh, hockey in the lower mainland or my kid plays hockey here in Ontario or wherever it is. And you're thinking, did you take some of my money and use that? Because I don't, I don't think I agreed to that. I don't think that was laid out in, in uh, you know, your financial statements. And, and the other exactly. thing that I think yeah. is really important that, that came out yesterday, the London police, uh, their police chief, uh, Steve Williams, put a statement out yesterday that said they're going to conduct an internal probe, uh, Simi, to see if there's an additional, um, I think the term they use, if there are additional investigative avenues that they can look into, which is this, which is kind of their way of saying, you know what? We might reopen this case, uh, and and again, um, it, it's it's unbelievable how this thing has had so many plot twists and turns in the last few weeks. But it, it does feel like there's the potential for that. So I think there's 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 a lot of things going on here uh, that seem to be putting this case at the uh, at the top of the list. And what did you think about the text messages too that got released in this case? My feeling was that they thought this was going to help them, but when you actually read the text messages, I don't think it helps them at all. If you thought, and just for the the the, the, the listeners' benefit here, uh, the lawyers who defending or are defending the the players involved in this incident decided to essentially leak some text messages between the uh, the players and the alleged victim in yeah. this case. And I couldn't agree with you more. Like, if you think that this is uh, going to uh, you know sort of exonerate you, it doesn't. I, I, I think they did, though, Ian. I think they did think this actually helped their case. And then everybody I've talked to who's read these has said, these are horrific. Listen, this is where we have to do a better job of listening to survivors and listening to experts in the field. Because if you talk to any expert in the field, they will tell you uh, consent is not something that is done 
after the fact or before the fact. And it's certainly not anything that is uh, continuous. Like uh, we need to do a better job of teaching young men about consent. And this is exhibit A. If, if, a, if a team of lawyers thought the video that, you know, this young woman may have been coerced into yeah. uh, providing that video. Uh, th- there are so many things wrong with that story and that way of, 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 of handling things. It, it was truly, it was truly appalling. It really was. Okay. So what happens next then, Ian? Yes. So as I said, uh, London police is going to reopen, like I said, internal probe. So that's ongoing. The National Hockey League has a uh, investigation going on that I think they're hoping will conclude uh, at some point in September. Now, next week, as I mentioned, here in Ottawa, there's going to be another round of parliamentary hearings. So you're going to see uh, key executives from Hockey Canada. You're going to see, uh, uh, you know, key stakeholders who are involved in this situation. They're going to have to testify uh, in front of MPs on Parliament Hill. That's going to be the next sort of tipping point. So for the people that are interested in this case, Tuesday and Wednesday of next week, I think are going to provide some more details. There's going to be, I think, I hope, a layer of transparency. And as we've seen in the last 24 hours, there's probably another uh, couple of pieces of information that are going to leave you uh, shaking and scratching your head. I'll bet. And I bet we're going to be talking to you next week, too. So, Ian, thank you. Uh, my pleasure and anytime uh, for you. Ian Mendez, senior writer at The Athletic. And listen, if you don't subscribe, you should. I do. Great website. Great work that they do. There are all sorts of uh, great writing on sports, too. You should check it out. And we will continue to follow and talk about the latest developments in this Hockey Canada story. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the potential for a 2030 Olympics here in BC. Now, city councillors in Vancouver approved a motion last night that puts Vancouver one step closer to help helping out and supporting this bid. Now, Mayor Kennedy Stewart said this is the end of phase one. Council agreed to move forward with helping four Indigenous nations try to win this bid, but we thought let's find out where this bid is at. Joining us now is Wilson Williams, uh, councillor with the Squamish Nation. Thank you for being with us today. Good morning, Simi. What stage is the planning at? Yeah, after, you know, the eighth endorsement here for, for the journey we've been on so far um, with the city of Vancouver endorsing uh, the, step, the last, last group to sort of endorse uh, that, that, that formal step. So we move on to a, a potential multi-party agreement, and we, we're going to formally... Um, as the group of eight here move forward and uh, for- formally consult the province and uh, federal governments to uh, sign on to a multi-party agreement. Okay, and, and what what would be involved in the multi-party no, agreement? Yeah, sorry, I I, 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 to mention as well, like the Sun Peak Nations up in the interior, we are actually scheduled to go up there at the end of this month uh, uh, to do. Uh, they're going to host us up there. What did you say, sorry? I was going to say, what is actually involved in the multi-party agreement? Like, is that where you sort out the costs and essentially who's paying for what? Yeah, the indemnity of, uh, not exactly. If we look at it in an Indigenous-led process, we're, we want to invite them, and what we use a lot, especially yesterday, invite them into the canoe and, and, and join the conversation in regards to the potential bid we have at hand. And, you know, we all agree that we're we're not in full support either yay or nay thus far we're exploring this opportunity and it includes uh, the parties that 
endorsed it so far, but we're we're inviting the province and federal government in in our canoe now to have those conversations to, you know, explore, you know, where the cost sharing, the 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 opportunities, the legacies and and so forth. Okay, because I know there's a lot of concern in Vancouver about, you know, the taxpayers and how much this is going to cost. Wilson, what do you think about the idea that you know, some people think there should be like a plebiscite in Vancouver to, so that everybody can decide whether they want to be involved in this? Yeah, well, the plebiscite is it, it is a very, you know, it would be a punch that I got to the, uh, uh, the First Nations-led process, which we've been doing since, from the get-go for since January. Or, or late Dece- or early December, sorry, but you know, we're doing this an Indigenous-led process to to invite people into the conversation on this potential, and to take that away and do a plebiscite is is sort of taking that power away, and 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 you know, it, it changes the whole thing where you know the IOC specifically said if that went that way and it would not only delay the timeline that we're rigorously going towards it would it would kill the bid so you feel that if the there is any kind of a plebiscite of pushing forward on that would the indigenous nations then say we don't want to we can't do this bid anymore we're not going to be part of the process well it's part of not only the nations but the the coc which is the canadian olympic committee and canadian paralympic committee you know the the directive and uh, it would just go against the process we have laid out since the beginning. Okay, so then you don't want to see the plebiscite there. Then what about the concerns, though, Wilson, the taxpayers have about this costing taxpayers essentially being on the hook for this? Yeah, so we are down the road and, you know, we finally got over the hurdle with uh, getting the eight endorsements from all the groups and our journeys and conversations continue. So we are hearing the concern as well. We, you know, being from the Squamish Nation, we are listening and walking with our people. So when when we take the next steps, we are communicating with our, our respective uh, community. And we've had a few uh, formal engagements in regards to the process. And we have uh, 75 to 80% endorsement so far. So um, as we move forward and once more costs come out or, or the potential, uh, you know, how, how much it is to the taxpayers, we are going to be consulting. And, and the same goes with the city of Vancouver. They have, they'll be doing their due diligence. So we are, like I said, not for or against. We're following this process. And then once we get to that, you know, end of the year, we'll, we'll make that decision if, if we are supporting it or not. And, and a lot does, as you are stressing in costs, that it does reflect that and that decision will come. Right. So you, so make or break time, do you feel, hasn't happened yet and you're still waiting for that mm-hmm. moment? Yeah, that that's part of the timeline and process. And we do hear the concerns and there's a lot of other um, um, priorities as well in regards to, you know, the potential legacies and, you know, the, you know, the cost, I got to say, Ours will significantly come down from if we're comparing to 2010 because we have the infrastructure in place and we have the facilities. Some of them need upgrades, yeah, but there's the conversations are happening. So it's very exciting to get to this point 
you know, in saying that we've, we've addressed some, you know, if it's communications concerns or, you know, what I said yesterday to, to council is that their endorsement makes our team stronger, but it builds a relationship, you know, and we reflect upon city of Vancouver as a city of reconciliation. So we really came to a strong, like a crossroads and really crossed it uh, strongly yesterday. Do you feel that was a, a vote of confidence in moving forward? Yeah. And, and, you know, having not just the nation stand together at the mic when we first spoke um, really showed the unity that we really are talking about. You know, it was more of a visib- visibility strength where, you know, we stood together with the mayor of uh, Whistler and the COC and CPC with and we all stood together and the, the working group was there and, and uh, really acknowledged uh, all the work we've done. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, acknowledge all the good work uh, City of Vancouver staff has done as well. Now, Wilson, are you concerned at all that this might become uh, an election issue, given that there is a municipal election and there were some councillors yesterday who were talking about opposing this? Yeah, you know, you know, I always, always thought from the, you know, when I heard that concern sort of come through my desk is, you know, this, this is a, uh, the, has the potential and it's, it's bigger than the politics where we can, you know, it's a first of its kind internationally that it's an indigenous led process. And that's something the IOC really holds up and really endorses. And at the same time, you know, it shows the path that we're working together. And if it's re- for reconciliation, you know, it's, it's, it's opening many new doors and we're leading by example rather than lip service. So we're taking it into action. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. It's certainly going to be interesting. Wilson, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Have for a good day. Sh- yeah, you too. That's Wilson Williams, a counselor with the Squamish Nation, talking about the city of Vancouver's support for the next step of the 2030 bid. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the show is back in town in Washington, D.C., the show being the House of Representatives January 6th committee hearings, and they're returning to primetime tonight. So what are we going to hear? Reggie Cicchini with us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. So Reggie, what's on the agenda? Well, we are in for a couple of hours of finding out what Donald Trump did and more likely didn't do uh, while the assault was taking place at the U.S. Capitol. We've heard from committee members that this hearing is going to focus on the 187 minutes of, quote, inaction by the former president, including the dismissal of requests from the mayor of District of Columbia to get the National Guard activated, including uh, from members within the administration to put out some kind of statement uh, asking urging, pleading for people to leave the Capitol. We'll also hear from a couple of former Trump administration officials who are also going to corroborate not only previous testimony, but try to answer more questions that uh, that the committee says may not have been asked to this point. Hmm. Okay, can we talk about this Secret Service situation too and these text messages? What happened here? So uh, it's it's complicated. Uh, number one, the U.S. Secret Service says that they were going through a device swap out uh, program that ha- had been previously warned of. And this was something that was scheduled to take place. 
However, we're learning now that the Secret Service was requested uh, numerous times uh, to ensure that the information, the data, the text messages were backed up to a, a server so that when the swap program was over, the information could be restored. And what we're finding out now is that Secret Service did not pay attention to that request. The information from those phones very well could likely um, you know, have, have kind of just disappeared into the thin air. Uh, and, and it's just, you know, it, it raises that question of it's coincidental that the text messages around January 5th and 6th cannot be found anymore, despite these requests from the Department of Homeland Security uh, Inspector General. What it's doing now is causing a flurry of, of kind of uh, rush to see if tech experts are able to get in and retrieve anything. But this is now raising that question did Secret Service potentially violate federal law by not paying attention to requests to back things up? Because there's a lot of curiosity, right, about what exactly, what kind of messages, what was going on within the Secret Service on that day? Who did they think was in danger? Did they think the vice president was in danger? Those questions haven't been answered. Absolutely, they haven't. They've only been raised further. Uh, when we go back to the testimony about the former president being at the beast, potentially grabbing the arm uh, of a member of the Secret Service, potentially berating members of the Secret Service, but also there were members of the Secret Service that would have been intimately um, informed about the, the situation before the rally at the Ellipse when we found out that there were people that were armed in D.C. This would have been information circulating throughout members of the president's detail. And the question now being, these are the people that are tasked with protecting the president. Is there now a level of, of trust that is being called into question because they may have been having conversations that they don't want other people to know about? Okay, so the testimony today as well will come from two people who had uh, resigned right after January 6th. Is that right? Yes, both resignations came uh, after January 6th, but realistically, they came because of the text, uh, the tweet that was sent out by the former president uh, that questioned former Vice President Mike Pence's courage and duty uh, in certifying the election results. And who we have is Sarah Matthews, who worked in the press office, and Matthew Pottinger, who was a senior uh, aide uh, with the National Security Council. Uh, and these are going to be two powerful uh, voices to be able to corroborate existing testimony because both of them will say that they were in and around the White House and the Oval Office as the attack was taking place and witnessed that nothing was being done. And Pottinger is going to testify to the fact that he was questioning why the National Guard had not been deployed yet and why the White House was resisting these calls from the D.C. mayor. And just to kind of get a little bit into the weeds here, around the United States, the governor of a state has the ability to request the National Guard. In D.C., we don't have a governor, so the mayor has to go to the Pentagon, but the president was getting in the way of those messages, so it took hours for the National Guard to be deployed despite that request. That is something that we're going to hear about today. Ooh, okay, so is this the last time we're getting primetime hearings? Is this the last opportunity to hear it in that forum? Well, it's the last meeting for now. We know that the uh, that Congress is heading into an August recess, so this is likely going to be what they say the last hearing of the summer, but... They are saying that additional hearings could take place throughout the year. Does that mean more prime time? It's possible. Does that just mean more regular daytime hearings? That is also possible. What we're also hearing, though, is that they may issue a scaled down report and then a more fuller report based on the fact that they intend to hold more hearings. So what was supposed to be kind of a quick and done after seven hearings is going to extend further and could result in multiple different reports which could then provide the Department of Justice with additional avenues to follow down if they opt to carry out additional investigations 
or potentially late charges. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit made a big announcement yesterday. Two men from B.C. have been charged with 13 counts, including conspiracy, possession for the purpose of trafficking cocaine, fentanyl, meth, well, you name it, essentially. So what are these men linked to? What more do we know about this case? Well, joining us now is Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, whose latest piece in the Sun this morning, VancouverSun.com, is all about this. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. So what do we know about this case? Well, we know that it's been going on for quite a few years. The investigation started in 2017. It was started by uh, the Kamloops RCMP, uh, who were seeing the expansion of what is known as a support club or a puppet club of the Hells Angels. Uh, And this club was known as the Throttle Lockers. Uh, So people in that club were hanging out around Kamloops trying to establish a clubhouse there, and police were very concerned because they felt that, uh, you know, these these sort of mini Hells Angels, they're not Hells Angels, but they have the support of the Hells Angels, they show up at Hells Angels events, they're basically sanctioned by the Hells Angels, and they thought it would also expand the drug trade in the Kamloops area. So they began an investigation. Uh, one of the people who was then a member of the Throttle Lockers, a man named Zell Cody, uh, owned a big... Um, kind of hydroponics store, garden, Sunshine Garden Superstore. Uh, so he was one of the targets. Another fellow named uh, Jake Cavanaugh was a target. And there's a third accused uh, um, named um, um, Mr. Carlisle. Uh, he is also facing some charges in this case. First name, Sean. He's a Falkland. He's not a local Kamloops resident, but very close by. Uh, so they started doing some... Um, sort of undercover buys uh, from some of the people that they believed were involved. And, you know, that means police were sort of asking for uh, drugs, paying small amounts of cash and building their case. Uh, The Combined Forces Special Forces uh, Unit got involved and they started sort of upping what they were purchasing. And there were uh, at least two kilograms of cocaine purchased at different times. Uh, so that's considered like a bulk order, uh, one for 50000 and one for $65,000. Uh, the businesses, the business and a couple of uh, Mr. Cody's home and Kavanaugh's home were um, raided by police in uh, November of 2019, where all kinds of cash was seized, drugs was seized, a firearm was seized. And, uh, you know, after that, they were building their case for Crown prosecutors who finally agreed to late charges uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And these arrests have now taken place. Wow. So how sizable is this for the Kamloops area? Like, have we seen something this significant like that before? Well, I'm sure there have been over the years, but this is considered a very significant investigation. Uh, you know, it's more, it's organized crime. Uh, Kamloops, uh, like Vancouver, you know, has a big street drug problem. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, substance users uh, living on the streets and, um, you know, you, you see the drug trade in front of your eyes. But, I mean, this is at a higher level. Uh, so I think it's significant. And interestingly, the throttle lockers, uh, which had set up shop there, 
uh, Zale Cody was a proud member. He was always displaying uh, photos of himself wearing the throttle lockers vest. He was very close to some senior Hells Angels, including uh, Chad Wilson, who was gunned down uh, here on the Lower Mainland in November of 2018. All kinds of buddy-buddy photos of them that he used to post. Uh, and now the throttle lockers is virtually gone. It's defunct. So, it is a hit to organized crime, as police were saying yesterday, and we'll wait and see what happens with the charges. How common are these, uh, as you put it, like puppet clubs of the Hells Angels? Like, do we see a lot of these? Yes, they come and go. I mean, you know, in other provinces in Canada, there have been sort of Hells Angels, but also rivals to the Hells Angels, the Banditos, for example. Uh, and some of that has led to, you know, serious conflict in other parts of Canada, particularly in Quebec, uh, which has had some major investigations uh, to target sort of the gang war between bikers. Uh, we in BC have one main biker uh gang, and that is the Hells Angels. So these support clubs uh, basically expand the reach of the Hells Angels. You see them wearing their three-piece patches in order to have like a three-piece patch on the backs of their leather vests. They have to get permission of the Hells Angel, uh, the Hells Angels to do that, right? So they're very close. Uh, you know, um, you know, when I've covered like funerals or Hells Angels parties, you know, you'll be like, oh, what's that patch? I've never seen that one before. And it'll be a new support club that has opened up. Uh, so they, some of them have names like the Jesters, the Savages, the Devil's Army, the Shadow Club. Uh, Throttle Lockers was definitely at uh, some of the uh, events or rides that I covered in the mm-hmm. last few years. And now they're virtually gone. So, you know, it is um, progress uh, by law enforcement in terms of dealing with outlaw motorcycle gangs. Right. And you, I mean, you've been doing this a long time. You say it's virtually gone, but does that mean that people pop up in, an, in another version? Does something else come along? Like what happens after that? Well, potentially, potentially uh, that happens. There might be a couple of people that still have a vest, but, um, you know, they have structures that mimic the structure of the Hells Angels. And in the Hells Angels, any chapter uh, has to have at least six members. So, you know, if you've got people who have quit or have been charged or, you know, uh, they're, they're virtually not active in that organization. But police are always watching because, yeah, others will inevitably pop up. And that has happened on and off over the last 20 years in this province. All right. So yet another development here. Do you find, is there, is there a lot of emphasis being put these days, would you say, on these organized kind of gangs like Hell's Angels or is you, it's just a constant battle? I think it's a constant battle and, you know, police have to use their resources to target who they think is currently causing the most trouble and is the most violent uh, gang or criminal organization. And you can see these are long involved investigations. You know, uh, this one was started over five years ago and likely the court proceedings will take another couple of years. So uh, they do take a lot of resources, uh, but I'm, you know, I think it's a big win when they get these kind of serious charges laid and essentially dismantle uh, a local organized crime group. Yeah, that is a big win. Kim, thanks for telling us all about it. Thanks for having me. That's Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, talking about the latest bust here. It was made, uh, the announcement was made yesterday by the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. And this all having to do with the organized crime and the drug trade in the Kamloops area. Pretty significant one, too. You can read all about it with Kim's latest story. It is in the Vancouver Sun today. That is VancouverSun.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, all sorts of folks will be gathering at the racetrack this weekend. They're going to put on their fanciest outfits. It's an annual event. 
New name this year, though. Our Raji Silhal is here now with more on that. What's going on, Raji? Yeah, people are going to be dressing their absolute finest for the cup. The event used to be called the Dayton Cup. That was after John Dayton, Jack Dayton, a.k.a. Gassy Jack. The cup organizers changed the name of the event in response to urban indigenous host Nation Voices. And they wanted a new name that was more in line, more respectful. Jordan Kalman is a co-founder of the Cup. And he said that when their organization decided to engage on the topic of their name change, they didn't go it alone. They wanted to do the whole, go through the whole process um, in the right way and do it very meaningfully. So they actually collaborated with Nahaney Creative in Vancouver. And that's an organization that does a lot of decolonizing seminars and workshops. And they said they wanted to go about, about it the right way. It was a long process. It actually took them a couple of years uh, to look at the name change, uh, but it was also long overdue. So here's my chat with Tatalia Nahaney and Jordan Kalman about what their work together to replace the Dayton Cup name with just the cup was all about. There was an, an article uh, that a local media outlet uh, published about um, some stories, some untold stories about Gassy Jack Dayton. Um, and Gassy Jack happens to be the former namesake of the event, Dayton Cup. Uh, and uh, the stories um, unpacked and, and told uh, a history where it was very obvious some deep trauma existed uh, in regards to some of the, the behavior that Gassy Jack uh, had during his lifetime, specifically about uh, his marriage to Kuahelia, uh, an Indigenous uh, person from the Squamish Nation, uh, during his life. We decided to, in, in February, uh, drop Dayton from the name uh, and just go with the cup. Uh, we decided that it was the right thing to do after uh, the statue came down and the outpouring from the community. Uh, it was very obvious that that trauma existed and we needed to leave space for it. So uh, we decided to drop Dayton from the name and just go with the cup. And Tatalia, your organization facilitates decolonizing workshops. How did you work together with Jordan on this name change? Yeah, so we've been working with the group for over two years now, um, pre-name change and, and post-name change and just supporting uh, their journey of uh, re-evaluating uh, their approach, um, their name, what their impact is. And um, so it's been a slow uh, un- uncovering, really, I think, of, of the direction that that the group wants to go and really what they want to represent in this city. So it means a lot to us as a host nation organization, as a Squamish led organization. Um, I'm frequently in the middle of complex conversations like um, the issues surrounding Jack Dayton and our beautiful ancestor Quahelia and what to do and whose story matters. And so, um, yeah, it's meant a lot um, for us group, for us to work um to remove the word Dayton from the cup and also to really join the celebration. That's what we're excited about. Um, you know, as indigenous peoples, we love to um, dress up and, and celebrate and um, in song and in dance. And we're frequently included in these kind of um, events just as the opening, uh, just as a territorial welcome. Uh, but this year we get to um, host a host nation VIP lounge and, uh, we've worked with the team to uh, deepen their territorial acknowledgement and to write an Indigenous cultural safety plan, which I really don't see um, other large events doing. And, uh, and 
And if they do do it, they don't really um, post them publicly um, or, or work with a team like ours to ensure that there's increased cultural safety um, at, at an event. So we're just really honored to play that role. There's been so much learning on our end, uh, just in terms of making uh, ourselves more aware, uh, you know, about the impacts, the colonial impacts uh, that have taken place. And um, I would say that we've put together um, a pretty solid plan for this year, this cultural safety plan, which we have posted on our website. Um, but I would also say it's just the first steps. And that this is uh, what we've learned is that this is a, a journey that actually just continues on into the future. Uh, particularly dropping the name Dayton uh, from the name of the festival um, and, you know, integrating First Nation artists in a more authentic and genuine way uh, and doing our first ever territorial acknowledgement, uh, which is a big deal. And we're really excited about it. And uh, I think that's very important from a protocol perspective. What I've learned about reconciliation in, to- in-, in general is that, um, you know, collectively we're going through this experience, but for us individually, it all means something different. Uh, and we all need to process it and contribute to it in our own ways. Um, you know, some of the interesting things that I've learned is, you know, I was born in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, and I've learned about the First Nations there and and the, you know, the host nations that, that play a part in that part of the world. And how do we connect our individual story uh, to reconciliation? And I think that um, the insight that it's an individual journey in a, in a much greater collective story is probably the biggest insight that I've had uh, and personalizing it to the individual and to, to me has been really, um, really rewarding. So this is quite the process here, Raji, that they, that yeah. they went through. Uh, and, and I wonder, like, is everything going to be going through this now? It was good on them for actually doing this kind of on their own. Yeah, pretty incredible. I mean, it made me think, okay, they they clearly knew that the name was problematic. Uh, people don't want to be associated with G- Gassy Jack, not certainly not for a Vancouver cultural institution. Um, they could have just changed it on their own, right? But instead, yeah. they chose to go through this process. And for me, like I've been thinking a lot about reconciliation and how is reconciliation for everyone? How does uh, How do we use it to come together so that we can move forward? And I think this is a great example of that. They have taken the steps to work with um, an Indigenous uh, decolonizing workshopping organization to go through it and to look at it really thoroughly. So they talk there about how they're going to be doing a land acknowledgement on Saturday's event, at Saturday's event, and they uh, will do it in a really meaningful way, in a way that they've thought about it, thought about the words that they're using and about how it relates to their organization too. So I just thought that's really interesting. And I asked Italia if a lot of organizations are engaging in this kind of work. And she says there are some, but she wouldn't put it at a lot, but that she would like to see more cultural institutions here doing that, taking those steps to see what they can do towards reconciliation. And it's going to be a fun event too. Uh, live racing, music, food fashion it's vancouver's biggest day party and it's so cute on their website they say don't be shy like dress to your absolute finest so it's going to be a celebratory event and it's fitting that they have this brand new name to go with to celebrate with people i love events like this too and people dress up and you know they look great and it's going to be a beautiful day and just what a celebration this is about, about the way to do things thoughtfully right? Like no big fuss, no muss. They just did it thoughtfully. I think that's really something to admire. 
Yeah, and it looks like tickets are still available. I think today might be your last call for early bird, but don't quote me on that. If if it is, then you can get a ticket at $65. Otherwise, it's $95. There's going to be a lot of First Nations art there too. They've been working with uh, First Nations on how to include them in the celebrations in a more thorough and meaningful way. And part of that is through the incredible art. I love it. All right. Thanks so much for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there. Now, coming up next on the show, BC researchers are celebrating what's being hailed as a breakthrough in blood-based technology and the fight against cancer. It sounds really promising there, but how can this technology help you? Does it mean a difference for you if you were faced with a cancer diagnosis? That's what we're going to find out coming up next after the news. This is Mornings with Simi. Did you know there is world-renowned research being done when it comes to fighting cancer right here in British Columbia? And once again, researchers here are at the forefront of what's being celebrated as a breakthrough. This time it is in blood-based technology that is used for treating and studying various forms of cancer. Now, I could try to explain it to you, but why don't we get an expert to do that instead? So we have with us Dr. Alexander Wyatt, who's an assistant professor of urologic sciences at the University of British Columbia, senior research scientist at the Vancouver Prostate Center, and senior author of this particular study. Dr. Wyatt, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Hi. Now, can you explain to us what is so remarkable about this breakthrough? Yes, absolutely. So what we've been able to do is develop a test that can tell us about the individual makeup of everybody's cancer. Um, And we do this by studying the DNA that cancer shed into the bloodstream. Okay, so has this not been done before? Because we do use versions of like blood work or blood tests to check for cancer, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. So I I think, you know, everybody's cancer is a little bit different. It's all uh, as different as you and I to each other. Our cancers are are very different. And in a cancer that's spread around the body, if we want to treat it really accurately, if we want to treat each person's individual disease, we really need to know what's going on in the cancer. Um, And so traditionally, the only way to do that would be to uh, put somebody under anesthetic and take a piece of that cancer tissue and then kind of study that in the lab or run some tests on it. Um, And of course, that's not a very accessible thing to do. And and the reality is most patients don't have it done. So um, what new technology allows us to now do is capture the information that cancer sheds into the blood. Um, And uh, this is something that's really only possible through recent breakthroughs in technology. Um, And so while we may have been aware that this was something that's theoretical before, um, now we've actually been able to develop um, both the experimental and the computational methods to analyze the data and get get at each person's metastatic cancer makeup. Now, Dr. Wyatt, when you put it that way, that is absolutely amazing. So you're suggesting that with potentially a blood test, we have a better idea of what your cancer is, and therefore your cancer treatment could be tailored to you just with that blood test. Absolutely. I think that is one of the most exciting applications of this technology that, you know, the the type of model we use at the moment, um, we say, well, you have prostate cancer. We know this anti-prostate cancer drug works in most patients, so we'll give it to you. Um, But really, we can do a much better job than that if we understand each person's cancer. And so you're absolutely right. Um, Once we know the precise features of each cancer, then we can select the best treatment for that disease. 
Okay, so is this what cancers would this test be best for? Is this for prostate cancer? So we've developed it explicitly for prostate cancer. I work at the Vancouver Prostate Centre, and that's sort of what we live and breathe. But uh, the technology that we've developed, we've actually made open source. All the codes and the uh, software is publicly available. Um, and we hope that it's actually applicable to pretty much any solid cancer. Uh, and so researchers, let's say in Europe, working on breast cancer, can now download our code, use our methods and uh, explore breast cancer, for example. Remarkable. Okay, so how far away are we from actually putting this into practice? Well, what's amazing is we've actually already been able to launch clinical trials uh, to test how this works um, in real patients. So uh, we've been running a trial across Canada involving lots of patients in British Columbia where we're actually treating their cancer on the basis of the DNA that we detect in the blood. Um, and so, you know, if, if those trials turn out to be positive, then that opens the door uh, for this to be accessible to everybody. Okay, so would you say within five years? Absolutely, yes. Okay, that is amazing again. So we have the drugs now, don't we, Dr. Wyatt? But is it just a matter of tailoring those drugs or knowing which drugs would work best in which circumstance? So, I mean, there's all, always better drugs we can design. And that's a whole area of cancer research in itself is getting better and better at targeting cancer. Um, so with every year that goes by, we have more uh, drugs and better drugs. But you're absolutely right that we have in our arsenal a lot of uh, drugs from different cancer types that could work in some situations. And so that's sort of uh, one of the things we're testing in, in clinical trials across Canada is can we take drugs that work in other cancers and apply them to prostate, for example. This is a complete overhauling, though, of how we treat the initial stages of cancer or even trying to get a diagnosis. Well, I think that's one upshot of the of the blood-based technology is also for early diagnosis. So what our research has done is focused on cancer that's spread around the body. Um, but it is also very exciting to think about applications for earlier stage disease, um, and particularly cancers where we already struggle to diagnose. So again, if you if you can detect cancer DNA in the blood, that's going to be an indicator that you have cancer. So would that mean that, okay, here's your initial test, we saw something in here, then you would go for further testing? Is this like a first step or is this the test on which you base your diagnosis on? So our test is sort of, okay, an individual that's already got cancer, um, sometimes their cancer spread around the body, and we're thinking, well, how do we treat this disease? Um, and in the past, let's say, you say, okay, you have this cancer, you get chemotherapy. And now what we're saying is, you have this cancer, let's understand exactly how it works and pick the treatment that is you know, most likely to have right. an effect. And so that's what we're now testing in clinical trials. Okay, so this is post-diagnosis then. So where do you go next with your research? Well, so we, we're expanding clinical trials and trying to test in more scenarios. Uh, we're obviously trying to get uh, our technology into other cancers and, and other research around the world. I, I think what's one of the things that's most exciting about being able to use blood-based technology is the broad access, right? So historically, if you were a, uh, a patient that lived in a big city and had access to uh, kind of big hospitals around you, you could participate in this type of re in, in biopsy research. Um, but now you can be an individual in a rural community, a remote community, and all you need to do is have a blood sample collected put in the post. 
Um, and so I think it, it's really a democratization of both cancer research, but also um, cancer care, you know, over the next few years. So um, I suppose that's where I really want to see the research going is, is being as inclusive as, as we can for all types of people affected with cancer. And Dr. White, I know, uh, you know, from talking to people over the years, BC is just a real center for cancer research worldwide. Why is that? I, I mean, there's many reasons why BC has attracted a lot of top scientists. Like, obviously, it's a lovely place to live. We all we all know that. Um, but there is uh, there is something about um, the engagement of of donors and philanthropy here that helps support research. There's something about um, you know our, our top universities that have trained some incredible uh, computer scientists. I mean. The individuals that have worked on on my on this paper, uh, they're mostly students at University of British Columbia. Um, so, young uh, young people that have grown up in BC and uh, are programmers, software engineers, and are already dedicating their lives to to solving cancer. Well, I feel like we're in good hands with that kind of work being done, Dr. Wyatt. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And best of luck with this. It sounds amazing. That is Dr. Alexander Wyatt, an assistant professor of urologic sciences at the University of British Columbia, senior research scientist at the Vancouver Prostate Center, and senior author of this study. I love talking about breakthroughs, medical breakthroughs, particularly those that come from right here in BC. And this is a big one. This will be the impact of this one, as you heard Dr. Wyatt point out, will be felt worldwide. Imagine you get an initial cancer diagnosis and then they take this blood test and they can tailor your cancer treatment, your chemo, your radiation, whatever it is. They can tailor it specifically to the type of cancer and how it impacts you and your DNA. I mean, that is phenomenal. I think anybody who's gone through any kind of cancer treatment knows this would be greatly appreciated at this point.